0: This is Life and Books and Everything, hosted by Kevin DeYoung, Justin Taylor, and Colin Hanson. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Life and Books and Everything with... Justin Taylor and Colin Hansen. I'm Kevin DeYoung. Uh, to give you some important announcements at the front end, in case you're one of the very few who don't make it to the end of the podcast, I, I doubt that <laughs> anyone, once you start, it's good to the last drop, but we will be taking uh, an, an indeterminate hiatus over the summer, uh, probably a, a month, or sometime we'll come back in August, we uh, anticipate and we hope to be i don't know if if bigger and better than ever but at least to be uh, season 2 as it were podcast 2.0 and we're we're in the process of trying to figure out some sponsors which will help us take some things to the next level with editing and uh, notes, show notes. Episodes. Show notes show notes episode show links. notes so book, book links so book links all these things that people have been asking for and I uh, just want to say thank you to all the folks at Christ Covenant who have helped us here in Amen. season one, uh, immeasurably so, to get us off the ground and to do this, uh, you know, really on a whim. Hey, we have a pandemic. Let's start a podcast and uh, have been nothing but cheerfully, wonderfully professional and supportive, and we're thankful for them. And look forward to uh, season two coming later this summer, even with uh, some guests here and there. So stay tuned. This will be, then we anticipate, uh, perhaps the last you'll hear from us for a few weeks. And we want to talk about books, of course. We'll get to that. But just to continue with some of the conversations we've had over the past few weeks and relating to all the things swirling around in our world at the moment. Actually, one of our listeners wrote in, we're getting uh, fan mail and- give the people what they want, Kevin. Yeah, and that's right. And said, Would you talk just a little bit about cancel culture? And it's become even more prevalent. And we've seen that the uh, the the dinosaurs, the monsters are now eating their young as the cancel culture giveth and taketh away. Uh, that's not just going after conservatives, but even those who have gone after conservatives are now getting eaten up by the cancel culture. Seems Con- like they're old. eating their old. They're eating eating, their young. young. They're young. It's the young eating their old. What is this thing? Um, I think most people have have heard of the phrase now, but where did it come from? What is it? Why is it problematic for Christians in particular?
1: Man, I don't know about the origins of the etymology. I'm I'm not sure about all of that. I just know that, my goodness, social media is such a perfect avenue for being able to expose un- acceptable thoughts. I mean, I think when you go back and you look at, um, if you read about the coddling of the American mind from Lukianoff and Hype, they talk about the way that language has shifted, that now you'll often hear people say that your language physically hurts me. It makes me physically ill. So we've weaponized language, which now means that if you have said something that is not acceptable, then you cannot be redeemed that you have said something that is, that is permanent. Now it's gone through all kinds of different athletes because we go back to something that they wrote when they were 12 or they're 14 or 16 or something like that, which basically say, Hey parents don't let your kids be on Twitter at age 12 or 14 or 16 for that matter. Um, Hopefully we'll see some changes there, but the cancel culture is not, it's not complete. Not everybody gets canceled and therefore they lose their job they lose their husband um, or their or their wife. They lose their friends. Um, I mean, we've seen this inside Christian circles. We've seen that form within blog posts or something like that that are not supposed to say the right thing. So people want to cancel them, which means just again, you're 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 cast out. This is Old Testament religion here. You are outside of the camp. You are untouchable now. Um, and I think it's a way of more or less policing thought and I don't think it's a lot more complicated than that it's being able to in 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 the absence of an ethic of persuasion this is a way of using sort of um, a real power it's 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 not tangible in the way that we typically think of as power because it's not so much the the more powerful you are the more likely you are to get canceled in some okay. ways because the more vulnerable you are. So if for example you're representing a major institution and you do something in your personal life, maybe you have an episode that somebody captures on film, then you jeopardize the reputation of that company or the, or some place that you represent and therefore they can attack the company and force you then to be canceled and it, you get fired and things like
0: that. And you talked about you know, the religious component to it in a sociological sense. You, then you start dealing with second and third and fourth degrees of, of separation. Yeah. You should be canceled because you haven't canceled that person and how how often in a 24-hour news cycle is that basically the angle, either from the right or the left, this person who you've been associated with or likes you, said something horrible. What will you do now? And and
1: both sides are trying to use it. Have you seen just a Michigan state grad, right? Jamel Hill. Yeah. Um, So she's been a a key proponent of cancel culture, but then it turns out that she had been trying, she had said some things about trans. She made a trans joke and then all of the right wing dudes have decided to pounce on her and say, see, so it's, it's not just a left and a right thing um might be more popular among the left more typical among the left but the right has found hey this is fun we can play this too
0: well you remember when we were in high school and we all read uh nathaniel hawthorne's scarlet letter yeah whether you know that's really indicative of what puritans were were like but we we read with horror uh, she had to wear the the a for the adulteress around her neck and walk through town and look at this public shaming and you read it and you just think how could people be like that well we know how people can be like that because that's what people are like that's that's human nature and we see it unleashed in our social media age that it's not the it's not sexual sins anymore but it's saying the wrong word or using the wrong sort of joke or making the wrong sort of comment that Mm -hmm. makes people upset and it's not and this is where it's very difficult and i'll I'll get your feedback here justin it's very difficult as christians because on the one hand there's a there's a right sort of instinct as christians we do want to be sensitive to others you think of the proverb like a madman shooting firebrands and deadly arrows as a man who who hurts his neighbor and said i was only joking so we do care about how our words affect people we don't want to just say, well, toughen up, buttercup. And yet, on the other hand, it, it, intentionality has been removed from discourse so that whatever you said, whatever your intention, whether there ought to have been offense taken or not, they are violent, they are offensive if I perceive them to be. And that is a, a dangerous place to be in. When not the- intent,
1: but perception.
0: Yes, when the one receiving them, you saw not quite cancel culture, but what was it in Oakland a few weeks ago when they found what they thought were nooses hanging in a park? And it was actually an African-American man who said, "Um, this was a gym routine, these ropes that we've had hanging up. And the white mayor or city council said, it doesn't matter whatever your intention was. It doesn't Mm -hmm. matter that you're black. These are offensive and must be taken down, which just boggles the mind how we've gotten to that sort of point. Justin, you uh, know well the ins and outs of the interwebs and have seen this. How do you uh, sense what's going on, protect yourself against it, stand athwart against it?
1: I want to hear Justin respond to the accusation that John Piper invented cancel culture.
2: Yeah, Sarah Pulliam Bailey of the Washington Post and Colin and I would count as a friend said, I'm kind of sure. surprised that Colin, conservatives, yeah. yeah, you worked with her at Christianity Today and really respect Sarah and her work. Um, yeah, she said, I'm kind of surprised that conservatives are against cancel culture. Anybody remember John Piper saying farewell, Rob Bell, which uh, that was a uh, three-word tweet that John Piper did with the link going to my blog post, which was responding to Rob Bell. So uh, I remember conversations with Colin on the phone as I felt like my world was coming in on me and the New York Times is calling me for comment and (laughs) the comments were flooding in about what a terrible person I
0: was. I think Kevin Uh, was involved with all that too, right, Kevin? I was. I remember I had just done a, it was Saturday. I had just done a wedding. I was at my church at a wedding yeah. reception. I should have been paying attention to my wife and what was going on. And I'm, I'm stepping out to talk to Colin or Justin about, did you, the f- farewell Rob Bell and the books coming out. And uh, I, I don't think he invented cancel culture. nor do I think that tweet was canceling, but, uh, w- you know, John doesn't need us to ride to his defense no, He'd defend himself. no but it, it's an interesting thing to think about it
2: samuel james my colleague at crossway said i'm all about cancel culture i don't know that i would use those words but when you're talking about the church and excommunication and putting the wolves outside of uh, where the sheep are uh, there is a form of cancellation that's appropriate it's when people uh you know unilaterally decide that they are the, the priests of prophetess of online discourse and can excommunicate anybody from polite conversation that it becomes more problematic. But I think it, it is indicative, it is illustrative of the difference of John Piper would rejoice, uh, would be the first to, to tweet if Rob Bell were to repent and were to say that he was misguided and that he was leading people astray, and that he misunderstood God's word and misrepresented uh, biblical revelation. I mean, John would rejoice and say, welcome back. I'm glad that you're here. Uh, cancel culture is something different where it says, you have committed the unforgivable, the unpardonable sin, and there is no recourse. It doesn't matter how sorry you are. It doesn't matter what forms of penance you do. You will be punished, and you will not just be privately punished, but you will be banished and uh, annihilated. Essentially, I think the key to understanding all of it is uh, the the safety metaphor that you know we need to have safe places. And the three of us work for institutions, and we're part of churches, and you know we have perhaps in the past had to have restraining orders against people who are violent. And, and you don't say, Oh, it's okay that you can come around if you just uh, feel sorry or if you start doing better. No, they need, there's kind of a, there's no exceptions. You cannot come around here. You, you are eliminated. Um, And once you use that metaphor and apply it towards online discourse and somebody committing sins that are against the cultural narrative, I think it is hugely problematic. Colin said it's a culture that has lost faith in persuasion. And, yeah. of course, the even deeper answer is that that has no place for grace. We all want grace for ourselves, but we want justice for other people. And I, see, I think we're seeing that played out, that the cancel culture is an anti-Christian form of action.
0: Right. And you talk about church discipline, and I would— Agree. I I would really push back against using that term because uh, as any good book of church order will tell you, the purposes in church discipline are ultimately to restore the offender, to bring glory to God, to protect the peace and purity of the church. And as a pastor who has had a number of occasions where we've both exercised suspension or excommunication, but have also had occasions where we've welcomed people back. Remember one woman coming to the table with tears and hugging me as she came up, and she had been welcomed back to the table upon um, many months or years, and, and then coming to repentance. So there's there's grace available, and while I don't deny that for some people, I mean we can't judge into the the human heart and people feeling these actually feeling unsafe, whether they they should feel that way or not, but actually do. But I think it's safe to say that there, there's also just some simple human totem poleism going on. That is, if you're at the top of the totem pole or a different metaphor, if, if you're at the you know, the top of the building and you have you know a hundred people with you who have made it to the top, or it seems like this is the place of moral excellence. If you push a few other people off there and then they push a few people off, you you feel a little better about yourself. There's not very many people on top of this moral platform and you're there still, uh, you feel safe for the moment. And so pushing people off, it's uh, the other metaphor, C.S. Lewis, it's the inner ring kind of phenomenon. It gives you the sense of moral excellence in virtue without having to do the hard work of... Developing patience and long suffering and character, uh, but you push people off the cliff, and you are still left for the time being, and that feels good. Yeah, I think
2: that's one hundred percent true. And if anybody out there has not read *The Inner Ring* by C.S. Lewis, that is a. Oh, what a great I, lecture! I think we're all pretty slow to say must reads, but that is a must read. Yeah. I think for our
0: times. One thing that explanatory power,
1: to- explanatory power that essay has. Yeah, absolutely. and it's
0: not, and to be, and it. If you read that, you aren't just going to think, uh, oh, C.S. Lewis saw what's wrong with other people."
1: No, you're, you're,
0: no, no, no. You're, if you have any humility, uh, you'll read it and you'll think, "Oh boy, that operates within my heart." Yeah. you know, all yeah. the time. Lord, have mercy. One thing that's been
2: new for me in this past uh, few weeks is hearing more than one story, not about online cancel culture, but kind of on the ground cancel culture among young people in particular. And not even for saying something terrible or saying something that goes against the cultural orthodoxies, but for failing to speak out, uh, say, on the race issue. If somebody has Instagram and does not use that to protest does not use that to condemn certain things, which are good things to protest, good things to condemn. Uh, the very act of silence is taken as an act of, of violence and not being supportive and, uh, a lot of mean spiritedness and cancellation and, um, critique coming just for the act of silence, which I think is a different angle than just what we're seeing on, on Twitter
0: or on other mediums. Colin, has anyone ever been critical of TGC for not
1: saying something? (laughs) I do not know of what you speak. I I think I appreciate that. That's that's why I love that people keep circulating the the clip from Seinfeld and Kramer when he famously joins (laughs) the AIDS walk, but won't wear the ribbon. You will not wear the ribbon. Why will you not wear the ribbon? beat him up they beat him up <laughs> because he won't wear the AIDS ribbon he's like I'm against AIDS I'm marching for AIDS I just don't want to wear the ribbon and all they care about is we just you have to wear
0: the ribbon you don't care about the ribbon <laughs> uh, connected to this it'll take us maybe on a brief tangent but we talked last time uh and Colin you gave us a really good explanation of with the, the the balkanization of media with everything being broken up into smaller and smaller bits it it encourages more polarity because you don't need to appeal to any vast swath of people because nobody is getting a big group of people. You just have to have a very passionate small fan base and you can be a pretty big deal. But what may seem counterintuitive, as that has become more fragmented, we live in a time where our news and especially our politics has become nationalized and universalized. They used to say all politics is local. And now it's like, well, no politics is local. Everything, and that has to do with the internet. It has to do with the the disappearance of local newspapers where you maybe have one liberal, one conservative newspaper. And what you really want is to get the morning newspaper, the afternoon newspaper. They tell you what's going on in, in your city. Well, that's all dead and dying. What matters then are what did Trump tweet today? um, What did Nancy Pelosi, what did AOC? And these stories then, some of which, you know, in one sense, what's happening in Seattle with the Chaz or the chop is is a big deal. In another sense, it's going to be forgotten. And it doesn't really have any immediate bearing on probably Birmingham, except that it's elevated as a national story and this happens all over the place so that any one of us can take the worst story uh, whether it's our worst fears on the right or on the left and say yep that's that's what's happening that's what police are like everywhere that's what leftists are like everywhere and that's coming and and you know the 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 phrase nut picking instead of nitpicking you pick the worst example of a Christian, the worst example of uh, someone of a different race, the worst example of a Democrat or Republican, a police officer, whomever. And because there are an innumerable number of stories at any one time, um, the the narratives we want to create are basically non-falsifiable because no one really knows. And you take any one of these stories uh, and not to say all of them or, or none of them deserve national, you know, outcry or recognition, but you take any one of them and it becomes the state of the matter. That's what people are like. That's what our country is like. Well, that's bound to be polarizing. And the stories are never going to be uh, with all the people gathering together to clean up after Minneapolis is going to be all the rest. Mm-hmm. So it, it, anything we we do or is it just simply an awareness of what's happening that may at least keep some of our baser passions in check. What do you think, Colin?
1: Two points there. One is we need to understand how we got into this position, and that's a st- it's an economic story. It's a story of advertising. So why did local media decline? It's because local media lost the delivery mechanism. They lost their financing Mechanism. So once Craigslist and things like that came in to replace classifieds, and then once social media came in to be able to allow targeting uh, through Facebook, especially and also now Instagram for advertising, you don't have any way to subsidize local media. So that's why we've lost that sort of pragmatic politics, um, because you don't really care what I mean, you, you can in some cases, but in a smaller town, especially, you don't really care which party your mayor is a part of because the things that you typically think of for a national party aren't really relevant at a local level in the same way, um, especially because local governments and state governments, as you know, Illinois would beg to differ, but they, they have to live with their a means. have state government in Illinois? <laughs> I'm aware of. Not a good one. Um, haven't for a long time, but... You just you, you have to live within your means at some level, and it's easier to find that common ground. But again, there's no mechanism for news to be able to cover it, except more or less what you're having come into place are these Chamber of Commerce uh, newspapers, which are only positive news. They don't deal with any of the hard issues. That's the first issue. And then the, so I don't know how we fix that. If we want local news, it's going to have to be philanthropic. Or it's gonna have to come through the Chamber of Commerce and it's just gonna be hyping local, like positive stories. That's not bad. I think my house, we receive like two magazines and two newspapers that are all just subsidized through the advertising through a Chamber of Commerce type approach. But then the second issue is, and this is something that we can do, I can't urge this strongly enough do not treat news as entertainment. I think that's why, Kevin we see what happened in Seattle be so important to Charlotte or to Sioux city or to Birmingham because it's entertainment. It's more or less a form of reality TV. Um, it's kind of scripted for a certain audience to produce a certain effect. And like you said, it's that nut picking there The the, the turn of news into entertainment where everything is a battle of good and evil between those horrible people trying to destroy your way of life and the good people trying to defend, you know, everything that's, that's wonderful about this world is deeply destructive and don't treat news as entertainment. It's not, this is not intended to be fun. Yeah. And maybe that's why in this pandemic, we miss sports so much because <laughs> it gets us Colin, out of that.
2: What do you do Colin to, to work against that in your own life, and your own mind? Cause I believe that, and yet I'm drawn to the headlines of you won't believe what somebody, somebody did and somebody said. and uh, well, Like, oh, I, that, that's, that's tempting to click on rather no,
1: than a 5,000-word what, what me-
2: article in The Atlantic or The Economist. <laughs> yeah, I, I think
1: maybe it's because I'm immersed in this all the time. It's not, it's not fun. It's kind of like when you become a parent, all of a sudden those stories about bad things that happen to little kids aren't very fun. You know they're not very entertaining. they're not they're not ones you want to click on. They just raise your anxiety and your fears all out of proportion of reality. And that's I think maybe just if you're more exposed to it like I have been for a long period of time and you know more of what's going on behind the curtain, you just this is this has real damaging effects, first of all to the people who watch um and and just to our broader political and cultural ecosystem. So, I don't know. I guess that I don't that's not really a solution, but that's where I'm coming from. It's just this is not uh, this is this is too this is painful. When when people are used, I guess when you're the object, like we're going back to cancel culture, not so fun when you're being canceled. Not so much in this case when you're the one who's being dragged all the time right. by right. people who think that it's entertaining to watch you, you know, to watch you being lied about. That's not fun.
0: Well, let me take this in a, a different direction that will try to be positive here. Uh, Hopefully that discussion was of some positive benefit, but we talked in previous episodes about tearing down statues. And I think we agreed um, some should be torn down. You got to deal with a case by case basis. The mob should not be able to just lasso whatever they want. There are channels to do this. And many people are eager to respond to some of those, but I want to talk about what statues should be put in place and not thinking of, you know, the people that already have statues, you know, maybe these we find out later some of these people do, but as you think in your mind, who would you like to see have a, a statue? Somebody from the past who's famous to you or, you know, somebody you know now? This could be, you're welcome to take this in a somewhat humorous direction <laughs> uh you know the person who invented Cinnabon or Ooh, oh. or take yeah. it in in a more serious direction but think about who are some of the people and we'll just throw out the caveat that it if we find some if somebody tells some listener says you didn't know that this person said this or this don't don't cancel us okay we're, we're not claiming to be biographical no. experts on these people but uh i have a list of several people but i'll throw it to you first Justin, do you have any thoughts of people you would like to see have uh, recognized with a statue? I'm sure you guys will think of funny ones, but
2: I would start with something serious in in terms of my own past and life story. And that would be Tommy Frazier's run against the Florida Gators. Oh, that's a good one. That's a good one. to, To capture that moment that Nebraska fans have never been able to relive. In over 30 years would be just a (laughs) glorious thing. I think I would stand there and weep as they just sculpted Florida Gator after Florida Gator after Florida Gator (laughs) attempting to tackle touchdown Tommy. So kind of starting off on a serious note, but that would be at the top of my list probably.
1: Uh, Another another Nebraska-related one I didn't think about, Justin, would be Alex Gordon's home run 2015 Game 1 World Series. That probably will be a statue at Kauffman Stadium soon. Nebraska baseball? alum. A Husker. Yes, it's a, a sport called baseball. A little oh, okay. ball to hit it out of the park. I thought you'd appreciate it at least because it's a
0: Nebraska alum. Okay?
2: Uh, I didn't you know he went play. to Nebraska. The
0: next one, Justin?
2: Uh, the next one would be the uh, Northwestern Hail Mary. <laughs> oh, no, you did not. You did not just go there. The backup quarterback throwing oh, a 50-yard no. to the Nebraska receiver that Jordan if you want Wester to, go to camp, U- Jordan who was Northwestern
1: West recruited. Yeah.
2: Really from Illinois. Yeah, Chicago, if you go yeah. to YouTube, it's just an entertaining thing to listen to Nebraska, Northwestern hail Mary. There's one YouTube where you can listen to the Nebraska radio call, followed by the Northwestern radio call, or maybe it's vice versa to hear. The, I
1: remember the, the where answers. I was, Justin. I
2: remember where I was. That happened. I texted you immediately afterwards. Oh I? yeah. Thank you. I appreciated yep. that. It's a beautiful moment.
0: Okay, I'm gonna jump in with uh you're getting me thinking of um good sports ones, but as a Michigan State fan, Jalen, Jalen Watts Jackson, as Sean McDonough <laughs> put it, the uh against Michigan, mm-hmm. the botched fumble with no time left, <laughs> running back, I mean that and then the surrender cobra afterward. You remember where you were, Kevin. I- In Birmingham, Birmingham. Alabama, I was driving from my hotel to Briarwood Mm -hmm. to speak at the missions conference. I pulled up into the parking lot. I heard that Michigan State didn't get it on fourth and whatever, and there was a minute and a half left, and I was so frustrated. We were both ranked, I think, in the top 10, Michigan, Michigan State that year, and uh, I went into trying to pretend like I was spiritual to preach at a missions conference, and I was just so distraught that we lost this game, and I'm getting ready to speak and and I my phone starts blowing up with texts, and so I said something like, "Oh, excuse me, I just uh, I'm I don't I think my wife may be wanting something," or <laughs> and I went back into the bathroom. Is in reception to watch this, and and people are just saying you won't believe what happened. Now it's hard for me to watch because he broke his hip when he got you know when he got tackled by his own teammates, but I'm sure that was worth it. So that would be one. You I have. Remember, you watched the earlier part of that game at my in-laws house. I, I do remember insane,
1: that. Wasn't it? Yeah. Because it was the Royals were playing at the same time in the
0: ALCS right. against the Blue Jays. It was yeah, like it was epic sports afternoon. Okay, I'll drop in a few others and let you go, Colin. Uh, sticking with sports. Now I I haven't I'm not an expert on him, but being from Michigan, uh, Mike Illich. So Mike Illich, not only Little Caesars best value meal friend of the show friend of the show you know and i'm not a tigers and a red wings fan but owned them did did right by them people and and some little uh, very philanthropic uh came out later in life that quietly he had been paying rosa parks rent in detroit when she was facing i think some opposition from 'er ne'er-do-wells and really uh American dream kind of story of, uh, born he and his wife of Macedonian immigrant parents, and then making it rich with pizza and owning these sports franchises and doing as much as anybody to try to revitalize Detroit. Mm-hmm. So there's probably a statue of him already. And then, um, Norman Borlaug, you know him, he already won a Nobel prize, but he's the father of the green revolution. Mm. In farming. And you read about him in Greg Easterbrook's Easterbrooks book on why things are much better than they seem. But it's estimated that his revolution in farming techniques might have saved one billion lives. Wow. When we study history, there's the there's the inevitable bias that it's almost impossible to study what didn't happen. So there's always a bias toward what did happen. Right. And so the heroes are who did think well. Here's someone whose revolution in agriculture may have saved one billion lives with more sustainable yields uh, around the world. So uh, I have some some Christian ones. I'll get back to, but jump in.
1: I'll I'll trans I'll I'll transition into the Christian ones. Yeah. Um, I had to look up who had a statue and who didn't. Yeah. So two of my people who I I wanted to have a statue did. Alexander Solzhenitsyn the Russian yeah. dissident 20th century there is, Where there is a that? statue for him and also uh Fannie Lou Hamer the uh, Mississippi civil rights yeah. activist also a statue of her uh so the other ones i got a, a few um uh Corey Tenboom uh or Betsy could be both could the be together that'd be great i didn't i did not find one of Corey anywhere Carl Henry feels like there should at least be a bust or something like that at the library that's named for him at Trinity. Yeah. I don't remember a bust, but they could or put in Carl Dever's in- office,
2: perhaps. Yeah, that's
1: true. That's probably right at Deborah's office. Now, I think they could put like Carl on a bench out front and you could sit next to him. I think that would be fun. Uh John Newton. I don't think I saw it. You know, I had the letters of John Newton last week in the podcast. As far as I could tell, for a man who Contributed so much socially, but also theologically, and and in our music, poetically. Um, didn't see anything there on an only or somewhere. Yeah, you'd think um, Louis Zamperini, famously from the book Unbroken. Um, you know, put up a World War II vet statue right there—a man who had you know great con- contributions to the kingdom, um, but then also heroic. Um, Uh, effort in World War II, and then a fictional character. I figure if there is a biography of Atticus Finch, then there should at least be a statue of Atticus Finch. Uh, Though, interestingly, in Monroeville, there is a statue uh, in Alabama here. There is a statue of the children from the book, but not of Atticus, which is a surprise. So, we should just, you know, somebody could make it in Gregory Peck's image, I suppose, but Atticus Finch.
0: That's good. Uh, I got more. Justin, what do you have off yeah, of I'm, the uh, Nebraska theme?
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so it was a uh, 1993 Orange Bowl. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Tom Osborne does have a statue outside Memorial yeah, Stadium, great. so that's yeah. already been taken. Uh, does Charles Spurgeon have a, spa- a statue anywhere?
0: It's got to. I've been to his church many times. It says Spurgeon's Church. I don't know if there's a statue. I think there has to be.
2: You would think. I mean, I, I've seen obviously lots of uh, paintings and drawings of him, but I've never seen a statue, so it seems like he would be. When well, there's got to be a C.S. Lewis statue somewhere, right? It seems like I've seen at least a bust of Lewis, but
0: In Oxford, maybe?
2: Lewis is worthy of, of one. I, I don't all know, I know if
1: Wheaton's would... going to claim. They have the original one. That's all I know. <laughs> yeah,
2: they've yeah. They've got the wardrobe. They maybe they could put the statue inside of it or something like that. So doesn't Augustine, Midwestern I'm Baptist
0: have like the relics of merchants' <laughs> teeth or something. <laughs> that that would be the place for the statue. Or yeah. again,
2: it's a bust. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, they I wonder if they have one there. I don't know. I'm not up on my uh theological statues like I should be, but uh, Augustine would be one certainly worthy, and I'm sure there's one somewhere but no one knows what he looks like, so I guess you just kind of make it up.
0: But what's his <laughs> name pronounced, Augustine, and not Augustine?
2: <laughs> I have a whole blog post on that.
0: I know. No. We know. All right. Uh, do you have more? Nope. Okay. I, I, I got some others. Uh, Samuel Zwamer. Oh, there you go. Islam, born in Vriesland, Michigan, My mm-hmm. neck of the woods. Uh, there's a Zwamer cottage at Hope College. And when I was there, Ben Patterson was the chaplain. There was some, you know, there was a big revival of interest in missions, and I don't know what's become of that, but there was in, renewed interest in Zweimer. So uh, a missionary in the Arabian Peninsula in that part of the world for, what, 20, 30 years, and then taught missiology at Princeton, but a wonderful writer and evangelical Calvinist. So Samuel Zweimer... How about, uh, I don't know too much about him, but the story is fascinating. The documentary from a few years ago, Pastor Lee jong Rock, the Dropbox guy in Korea, saving the babies as they put them in the Dropbox. And I know some people were critical of, well, that's encouraging people to dispose of babies, but, you know, he saved hundreds of babies that way. Uh, One that would be maybe controversial, but someday there will be a statue once the 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 politics of it are in the rearview mirror more distantly but i do think there will be schools named after clarence thomas and a statue somewhere i know you got to just sort of come down on was was he telling the truth and it was a high-tech lynching at his confirmation hearings which from what i've read i'm persuaded that it is but his his uh you know pbs did a really remarkable documentary a couple months ago it was available for free i'm not sure if it still is but it was just him narrating the story of his life and you know media clips and pictures but a true rags to riches not i don't know if he's, he's rich but certainly from um extreme racial uh animus and poverty to heights so th- there's a, a great american story there and i i think uh a story worth remembering. And then here's the last okay. one. Today, while we're recording this, the only justice to dissent in
1: today's a, terrible abortion decision by actually attacking Roe v. Wade. Praise God for that. Mm. The only one, unfortunately.
0: Well, it was 5-4 decision, right? right? He was
1: the only one who dissented. So, yes. and in his dissent, specifically said what we should be going after here is the whole right. premise of yeah. Roe v. Wade. The others may have agreed, but they didn't choose so, to. That's he did. Point.
0: And then I, I know you... That's right. Big fan of the rest. You'll agree with this one. Don't want to embarrass her. She, uh, she's ever listening, but Johnny Erickson Tata. Amen. I mean, Amen. talk about someone that without you know, drawing attention to herself, because that's never her point, you feel like, I want to be a holier person in heaven is worth it. And, uh, you know, all of us at any time we've spent with her. So there will be a glorious statue and, um, uh, whether it's in her wheelchair or standing up, it would be up right, in
1: the process of standing up would be a beautiful, I mean, I was thinking it, yeah. good statues like the, like the Dropbox, uh, pastor would be a great statue, but yeah, Johnny getting up you know, starting to starting to stand up yeah. or being welcomed up by Jesus. I mean, you don't want to do a statue of Jesus? Yeah, I can do a hand. Just yeah, a right. Hand, a hand like being led up would be beautiful.
0: That's beautiful. Um, All right. Well, thank you for indulging me on our uh, our fundraising tour for these mini statues. As we wrap this up, and we take some breaks over the summer. We're going to be doing summer reading and our intrepid listeners may be interested to know what books you, what uh, the three of us are going to be reading. Uh, You don't even have to pretend that you're going to finish all these books. Maybe you'll just start them or just make a a dent further into some of them. I have several thick books and I know I'm not going to finish most of them, but uh, Justin, let's start with you. What's on your shelf that you hope to um, read over the next two months. Not not a project that you, for something you're writing or studying, but you just want to read and enjoy and have fun.
2: Yeah, I've got a number of books kind of in the pipeline and I appreciate the caveat that we might not finish them or our our eyes might get attracted to other shiny objects. Uh, along the way, but um, so I guess in different categories, uh, Stephen Baugh, B-A-U-G-H, uh, has a, a big thick commentary on a F- letter to Ephesians and our pastor at our church is preaching through Ephesians, so I'm trying to uh, read through it and study through it um, as we go. Hans Rosling's uh, Factfulness, this mm. is an awkward uh, time for this book perhaps, but it's 10 reasons we're wrong about the world and why things are better than you think. I things feel... Bad and uh, going to worse, but uh, it's a, a very uh, empirically based book on uh, just why everything you hear from the media and all the. It sounds like similar to Greg Easterbrook's mm-hmm. book, uh, which I haven't read, but I'd like to dip into that. Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly. Um, some people might be surprised if I haven't read all the way through a Crossway book, but you know we, we acquired them. You published <laughs> a lot of books. Yeah, 80-some yeah, books a year, and uh, obviously Dane's book is getting a lot of attention, and it's something I think you can read through rather quickly uh, because it's simply and clearly written, but I'm trying to read just a chapter at a time and go slowly because it is really a beautiful and profound book. Uh, on the fiction front, I don't read a ton of fiction, and um, like a lot of us, uh, regret, want to read more fiction, but um, August Wilson was an African-American playwright in the 80s, 90s, who uh, sought to write a cycle of 10 plays about the African-American experience through the 20th century, each play taking having a setting in one of the centuries, in one of the decades. And uh, I've read Fences, and I just... Uh, completed the one on Ma Rainey, which uh, Denzel Washington is producing all 10 of them as films. Um, and they, you know, all the caveats that has sexuality in it and has blasphemy, but uh, I want to read more about African-American literature. So um, also picked up James Baldwin's of Beale street could talk. Uh, so I've, I've just started that and, and want to get into that a little bit more. A um, couple others would be, um, E. Randolph Richards, Paul and First Century Letter Writing on Secretaries, Composition, and Collections. A fascinating book on how Paul used secretaries, uh, how he made copies of his own letters, the expense that that cost him, what was actually involved with the co-authors that he mentions in his letters, what implications that has for inerrancy. Um it's a really interesting book. Bao mentions in his Ephesians commentary that he wishes more New Testament scholars uh, would take his work into account, especially as, you know, with the letter of Ephesians, people saying, well, Paul didn't write it because the style is different. The vocabulary is different. So that's one, a little bit more of a technical study that I'd like to get into more. Um, and then two others, um, John LeClairet, I've never read any of his spy novels, but I've heard he's the greatest spy novelist ever. So the spy who came in from the cold is one that I'd like to uh, dip into. And then finally, Christopher Caldwell's the age of entitlement America since the 1960s uh, for more of a kind of a political uh, cultural analysis. So, that's uh, sitting in the pile next to me. Uh, if we check back in a couple of months, I probably will have uh, seven other books that I <laughs> look yeah. more interesting to me, but that's in the, the slush file for right now.
0: That's a great pile of books, and uh, I, I really appreciate the disclaimer that you may not actually read much of them, but it's a good pile. I have a similar pile. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll zip through mine, and then we'll give Colin the last word as he probably has some books on Russian immigrants meeting Swedish Lutherans <laughs> in Minnesota, or something. The hard I wish if anyone has. if anyone knows about a book like that, I would read it. So just let me know. Okay, I have uh, I have ten books on my shelf, but most of them are in the category of I've gotten part way through, and I need to I need to see what I can get from the rest of them because I'm probably not going to read through them slowly. But it's worth getting a few big ideas. So one of them is The Myth of Disenchantment, which is really – it's a book about magic and science and religion and how this idea that in the modern world we have had the triumph of science and we have been disenchanted from the idea of spirits or the occult or talking to the dead is a myth and he goes through you know i think he starts a story with the curies and he has lots of uh evidence to suggest that many of our heroes of capital s science were uh far from disenchanted they were into astrology and talking to the dead and all he, and he's not advocating that that's good or bad but uh, as far as i can tell he's making the case that we are not nearly as disenchanted as a modern world as we think we are so that's an interesting book the body by bill bryson i made about halfway through that he's he's written a number of best-selling books and this is a he's just a wonderful writer and so he goes through every part of the body and tells you amazing anecdotes and facts i got about halfway through then my wife took it and she plowed all the way through so i'll probably uh spend some time and see if I can finish that off. I also mentioned the morality of laughter uh, a few episodes ago that I want to, I'll probably give that a quick skim through. Uh, I'm partway through Amity Schley's book, Great Society. She's written a number of these histories on the new deal, or does she have the book on Calvin Coolidge. Uh, but this one is on the great society, sort of a, a history of economic, programs in the the, 60, in the 60s, and she's going to be largely critical of what the Great Society actually accomplished. Uh, I've also started and need to plow my way through as much as I want to, John Turner's book, They Knew They Were Pilgrims. This is the uh, 400th anniversary of the Pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock. And so uh, Tommy Kidd has a nice blurb on the, This is the new definitive account. Have you and, read
1: any of it, Kevin? Yeah, I have.
0: Yeah. Is it worth? Cause it's on my list. So should I keep going or start it? Yeah. 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 You should. Right. Yeah. It's on your list. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's going to be fair history, but it's it's certainly not going to romanticize the pilgrims, but say, okay, we, we shouldn't romanticize them for Thanksgiving or their great tolerance necessarily. But here are things that were genuinely impressive about what, what they accomplished. And then I'll give, I'm not going to go through all 10 of the books that I'm looking at on my shelf, but I'll give you then three books that I, I want to read more carefully. One is uh, Harvey Mansfield's book, Manliness. Uh, what is he at Harvard? So a very countercultural book to even write that there is such a thing, let alone definable thing or something worth commending called manliness. So I am reading through that. And then uh, maybe you guys read Andrew Roberts' book that came out a year or two ago, his his single volume Churchill biography, which is supposed to be the best Churchill biography. I've I've read uh, one or two others, parts of one or two others. Uh, so I'd like to at least make a dent in that. It's a big book. And then finally, I'll mention McClay's book, Land of Hope: An Invitation to Our to the Great American Story. Mm which uh, I'm, I'm well into it, and he, he writes well. I think, you know, he's a, he's a conservative. He's at University of Oklahoma. I think he's trying to write a story of American history that is uh, both something that can bind us together. So that's a big, one of his big themes is as a nation, we need to have a, a common sense of story, purpose, identity, and so the name Land of Hope gives you a sense for, he, he still thinks that America is, is a place where people dream and people want to come to, but uh, he's definitely not in the camp of just presenting uh, one great hero after another. He's very obviously from the get-go is saying there are things about our history that are ugly and we need to own up to them and we need to acknowledge them, even if the ideals are ones that are worth remembering so you know a a good textbook textbook really doesn't do it justice because that sounds boring but uh, i love reading american history and so i'm looking forward to moving through that book mostly a political history of the united states colin what do you have on your wonderful list no doubt some good fiction books that we should have heard of
1: no, I learned my lesson last week. You guys really just made me look bad. No, with I all don't your fancy no. books.
0: Um, no, uh, I and love I Kevin. Want to that William sheds dogmatic theology. That's the other okay. one.
1: I love that Kevin. You give us reviews of the books before you've even
0: read them, which well, is pretty I, impressive. I, I read, <laughs> I read the introduction and I read the conclusion, but I haven't read you know all the middle sentences. <laughs> All right. Well, I just appreciated that. Um, I had Turner's book
1: on my list, but realistically, if I just finish Blight on Frederick Douglass and Taylor's Sources of the Self this summer, finally, yeah. that will be an accomplishment because, whoa, oh man, those things are taking me a long time. So, other than that, I'll just mention two. And one of them is an obituary for wisdom literature, the birth, death, and intertextual reintegration of a biblical corpus. Uh, well, by my friend out. Will Will Kynes here at Samford University. So I'd that's
0: love to be able to... Yeah, it I is. It's his dissertation. Well, let me know
2: what you think, Colin, because I'm...
1: Okay, thanks,
0: Who's the illustrator for that book?
1: Uh, I don't know. It's a pretty... I mean, I don't know if we know what Job looked like, but he looks oh, like okay. he's got a long beard okay. here. <laughs> so, there's there's or no is pictures. It, is this Job or is this supposed to be Solomon? I'm not sure. But anyway, one of Will's points is that the very concept of wisdom literature is owing to especially German liberalism and especially to anti-Semitism oh, uh, as, as well. So he's talked, he's done presentations on this at SBL, things like that anyway, or SBL. Uh, so that's, that's the one I'll mention. And then also Irwin ins the beautiful community, unity, diversity, and the church at its best. Hope and I can have Irwin on as a guest. Um, Coming up on my Gospel Bound podcast later this year, so we'll see. But uh, those are just a couple I'm looking forward to, and yeah, I just, man, I just hope I finish uh, <laughs> Frederick Douglass and uh, the biography, which has been good. But oof, I'm yeah. it's, it's
0: big; it's 700 plus pages. Did you? I just finished the the three part series on the History Channel of Grant. Oh, I didn't. I haven't watched Did it you watch yet. It? Oh, Not yet. You lo- I mean, it really, it, it, it presents, you know, he made mistakes in in mm-hmm. battle and in life, but it's definitely a very positive, I think, well-deserved. There already are statues of Grant and should be yeah. statues of Grant. So it makes me almost want to try the Ron Chernow biography, but I didn't make it through <laughs> Is Washington one, and so I probably wouldn't make it through. Did
1: you make it through Hamilton? Because that's sitting on my shelf too. No, right? I didn't. Okay,
0: I know. July third
2: is when the play comes <laughs> out from Disney Plus. Yeah, wait, just for Disney Plus. Basically. Yeah, I, I mean that'll It's what like the run, Disney Plus versions of all these biographies.
0: <laughs> yeah, when when is come on? When is Disney Plus gonna? help us get through the presidential biographies (laughs) or the founding fathers
1: starting july 3rd
0: yes well thank you friends for joining us and thank you these two good friends for talking about books and we hope you have a great summer and hope to be with you uh on the other side of some wonderful rest and reading and recuperation and hope that you have as much fun as we do trying to read some good books until next time god bless